Hello, and welcome to the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph. And I'm Ashley Wakefield. And we're here to take you on a journey through the boring parts of your Bible, books that you just couldn't finish when you tried to read them. Together, I hope we'll get to see some of the hidden beauty in these books, and maybe afterwards you'll love them too. But if not, that's okay. You will still get to tell your friends you got through them and have full bragging rights to your pastor. Just don't let it go to your head. So let's get started. Welcome back to the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph, teaching pastor here at Wayfarers Christian Church, and I've got with me in the studio, Ashley Wakefield. Hi. Hey. We are back again. I'm actually, uh, Ashley, go ahead and talk one more time on the microphone, because I didn't sound check you. And yeah, we're just I was going to say, live. you didn't sound check. <laughs> <laughs> All right, there we go. There we go. I don't think we got that high uh, as loud, but uh, we've got it now. Um yeah, so we are uh, in the book of Isaiah, going through it chapter by chapter, and we are at chapter 64. Um, this is a shorter chapter today. Um, I'm looking forward to this chapter in a lot of ways. This is all from the perspective of the prophet of Israel. Um, we don't get any um, uh, voice of God in this chapter. It's all from a human perspective. And it's really kind of like a psalm of sorts. Like you, I could easily see this like getting like cut and pasted into uh, mm-hmm. the psalms because it really is just kind of reads like a poetic psalm that was written even by David or something. Um, and it's been really cool just to uh, get to read this this week in my own personal life. Um, I'll say that it's just brought me a lot of uh, comfort to uh, it always brings me comfort to read prophets that are looking at a situation in which things aren't working out for them mm-hmm. and they're talking to God about it and they're um, making known their desires about how they wish that things weren't the way they are and they're uh, basically asking for God to be faithful in a circumstance so uh, there's a lot of meaning in it for me just um, I revel and uh, revel might be the wrong word I I am encouraged by um, uh, chapters like this a lot of the time just uh, makes me feel better when I pray personally to God um, in sort of the same vein. So yeah, I'm excited to get into this chapter and just kind of walk through it overall. Uh, what were your overall thoughts with it uh, when you read it, Ashley? Uh, when I was reading it, I guess it kind of came across is that phrase, let the crime fit the punishment. <laughs> and so the people are kind of like, yeah, like I know that we sinned and everything, but I feel like that this is way too harsh and we kind of want you to ease up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, sort of like uh, them, like sort of like uh, asking for the sentence to be reduced a little bit. Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> I like that. Um, yeah, so let's go ahead and uh, dive into this chapter. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, 
and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look upon us, we pray, for we are all your people. Your sacred cities have become a wasteland. Even Zion is a wasteland, Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and glorious temple, where our ancestors praised you, has been burned with fire, and all that we treasured lies in ruins. After all this, Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? All right, so this chapter opens up with um, the prophet calling on God to come down and uh, the mountains be trembled before you. This is for sure echoing the Mount Sinai incident where uh, if you uh, are unaware, um, God actually is signified as both a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire at night. And uh, during the Mount Sinai incident, uh, he actually rests that pillar of cloud and pillar of fire atop the mountain and so i think what's being like uh called back here is like the prophet asking god to uh want that same thing to happen again where god um comes down from the heavens and rests uh rests physically on um the mountain itself and so yeah he's wanting the mountains to tremble um and he spends a lot of time talking about like um the metaphor of fire in this passage and just how um, he sees God as this like fire that'll set twigs ablaze and calls uh, cause water to boil. Um, and it's all kind of uh, imagery that I think he's pulling from uh, the Mount Sinai incident. And that's really important for the people of Israel. Cause that was the time that like they were given the law of Moses. It was the time that God promised to be like in covenant with them mm-hmm. as long as they followed through with all of the, uh, um, promises that or commands that he gave them and so for this prophet he's sort of like looking back to the beginning of their whole relationship and uh, sort of the Mount Sinai incident for us today I think the best metaphor would be like a marriage of sorts mm-hmm. like Mount Sinai was what marriage is for us today it's sort of like God entering into a covenant marriage with the people of Israel and so he's looking back to that uh, marriage day ceremony and thinking back to how God hasn't ever come in such a powerful way again mm-hmm. throughout his entire period of time. And there have been a lot of reasons for that. There have been reasons in which Israel has been unfaithful to God. And so God has uh, been uh, not as available. Um, the book of Samuel actually opens up with the I- idea that Israel got so bad that the voice of the Lord was like very rare mm-hmm. um, because basically they just like were just uh, dis- like, disobeying his commandments so much it's like he kind of just like um let them uh, exist in their own sin without ever ever being in their lives and that's kind of a a um uh not a trend but a a um like uh what's the word um that's a, a it's an action that god will repeatedly do is when people um go their own way he will actually abandon them to mm-hmm. their own sin um, and kind of leave them to their own devices so to speak so it's, I had a question about that yeah okay so I think this kind of relates to something that we brought up 
a few weeks ago and it kind of um I, that's what when I back when I was really listening to the Bible um project. Yeah. And so it kind of brought up this idea which I never thought about, but the idea that, you know, kind of what you were talking about, how like God takes his hand off of you, like right. he kind of lets you do what you want to do. Like he lets you go down your own path so you kinda of end up destroying yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I guess I was kind of thinking about the idea of no one hearing a word from God. So is it the fact that I guess because related to this chapter as well, and also to which you were bringing up the idea that is—is is it that God is far away, or is it that they're just not pursuing Him? Yeah, I mean, there is there is a systematic theological answer to that, and then there's the answer of the Bible. You know, mm-hmm. the systematic theologian would say, "Well, God is omnipresent, so He's mm-hmm. everywhere." You know, and He's not actually being far removed. Um, and in, and in a sen- certain sense, like there are certain Psalms in the Bible that actually uphold that, that like he is omnipresent and that he's everywhere. Um, and that like, um, uh, he's in all of his creation in some sense. So there's definitely an element of that, of him being everywhere that I don't want to, uh, walk away from necessarily. But I think the problem comes when our systematic theology becomes the way we understand God instead of the Bible being the way we understand God. And I think it's a lot more nuanced than uh, God is everywhere, so he's not actually removing himself because God mm-hmm. is everywhere, and these specific verses that we pick out from the Psalms say that, so that's how we think of it. Um, I think what the Bible's trying to tell us is that it's a far more nuanced and more of a dialogue between that kind of tension, between mm-hmm. God being both omnipresent and also being someone that removes himself from situations. And I think you can point to examples in scripture of him doing that. Um, in this case, I think this is one of these verses where you can see that um, at the very bottom in verse seven, no one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you mm-hmm. for you have hidden your face from us and you have given us over to our sins. Mm-hmm. So there is like, you know, some language there of him doing that. And so I think what you have to uh, basically come to grips with and this is with any issue in the bible where you see some passages kind of implying one thing but then you see other passages kind of implying a different thing is you really have to kind of just rest in god not being um static like Mm -hmm. only defined by the words in scripture but that god is someone that is a character a person is like someone that we interact with and have a relationship with and he moves kind of in his own rules, so to speak, backward and forward in the rules that he sets out for himself in scripture. And I think that that he's more like, um, I'm trying to think of a good analogy of this. Like the best, best one I can come up up with is like sound waves, which won't be uh, like uh, the most helpful for people that don't know what sound waves are. But um, sound waves have both like the up point, in which they're very tall and then a point at which they're very low. And you could say of sound waves, like, uh, are they up or are they down? And the only answer you could say is, well, they're both They're Yes. Like it, it, they operate in an oscillation of going up and down. And so it's like asking that type of question is like hard because like they're both. And I think that's kind of where we sit with this, particular question you're asking actually whereas like is god actually removing himself or is he uh omnipresent like i think the answer is yes you know like yeah does that make sense yeah and i guess my other question which i was thinking about this too was um the reason why it's so hard 
why it seems so difficult for the Israelites in this chapter to kind of get get into God's presence, even though it seems like that they're really desiring him. So I guess my question is, because I guess this is kind of how I sort of see it, that it's not so much that they're just crying out, but he wants them to change their ways. Like God's idea of pursuing me isn't just crying out to me when you're in trouble, but it's like, a change of action. It's like I don't want to. I don't want to just hear you cry out. I want to see you do something different because you can't cry out and keep doing the same thing. Right, I want to right. see you continuing to do the same thing and continuing to do. I want you to do something different other than doing the same thing over and over again. Right. And that's the element that they're that they're missing. Like that's why because it's sort of like they're creating this sin, but then God Himself, who is holy and righteous, cannot dwell amongst sin. So He's trying to separate Himself not from the people, but from the sin that they're creating, and He's trying to wait for them to be like to have basically like a true repentance of not just crying out to me, but also doing what I'm asking you to do, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. It does. It's like, um, this isn't just like uh, a position that they're in where um, they're in good standing with him. Like they have disobeyed him. And as a result, like um, this is in many ways, like it's hard because I do think that, this prophet's writing is genuine and we should make it clear that I don't think this is the people of Israel writing this. Mm. I think this is, this is a prophet of Isaiah that like did follow after God and was like part of Isaiah's like Mm. group of people that all did follow after God. And so the person writing this, I think is actually someone that is obedient to God. Um, But he's looking at himself as an Israelite and as the community of a whole is basically known for the fact that they disobeyed God very handedly in so many stories, he is putting himself into that story as an Israelite and Mm, saying, we have, you know, disobeyed, you know? And so I think, I think he's speaking for his nation, you know, Mm -hmm. it would be the same way as like, um, as an American, whereas maybe like, uh, I personally didn't like, uh, so he's like an ambassador. Yeah, seeing himself as an amba- ambassador of sorts. He's basically taking on the representation of um, his own nation and mm-hmm. taking uh, onto himself the sins of the nation, in a sense. Mm-hmm. You know, like, um, and I think that that's a healthy thing, and that's something that Christians very often do. Mm-hmm. Is you know, and yeah, if you're an American or whatever country you're from, like, I think that's something that's encouraged for us is to like look at how our country has acted and. In some sense, you sort of take the actions of your country and you import them onto you, you know, mm-hmm. as like because you're a member of that group of people, mm-hmm. you know. And so the the sins of the community become the sins of the individual, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's a powerful thing that he's doing here. Um, I think that is something that you um, like take as a choice. Like, I think you have a yeah. choice in that. But like, I think that's what he's he's sort of standing in between he's playing the part of Moses so to speak where Mm -hmm. Moses oftentimes in the Sinai incidents is when the people mess up um, Moses will often say like punish me God you know and like I think that that's kind of he's sort of um, this is an Old Testament version of being a mediator and how um, the high priests in this whole context were supposed to operate which is you know to take on the sins of the community um, and place them uh, on um, the altar of burnt incense, um, which is a whole other thing we could get into about Leviticus. But yeah, I think I think that's kind of what's going on here. Is this isn't someone praying from uh, inaction? This is someone that actually did follow after God, but he's taking on the sins 
of the community around him who probably would never write a prayer like this, honestly. I think that they would just continue on as they've always done and grumble and complain. Um, And we maybe even got some of their own perspective in some earlier chapters in Isaiah. Um, But for for this, this, this one here, at least, I tend to think of it more so as a prophet of Isaiah that's just looking at his um, people and wishing that things were better in his culture and time period. Does that make sense? Yes. So like basically um, to kind of wrap up here, I think uh, we've kind of talked about a lot of the hot issues that I think he's bringing up. Um, There is uh, one thing that I find very um, deep and meaningful for the Jewish culture. That is something that we kind of miss today. And I was thinking about it uh, and like how to relate this to y'all listening on a podcast, but it's in verses, um, 10, 11, and 12, where he says, your sacred cities have been be- become a wasteland. Even Zion is a wasteland. Jerusalem is desolate, and the holy temple has been burned with fire, right? Um, that can be really easy to just kind of read and gloss over, but like that is a really serious thing for their culture and for their people. Like The temple getting burned and destroyed was probably the most traumatic thing that ever happened to them as a people. Um, and the only thing that I can like sort of relate that to today is is um, imagine if you're uh, basically in a car accident and you've lost the ability to use your body and you just have to wait on, you have to let other people take care of you. Like that's basically the closest you'll get to what it was like for them to lose the temple. And why I say that is because like um, in the New Testament, our bodies are a temple unto the Lord and we can now worship God wherever we walk and talk and like we can do things that worship him and our bodies are the way that we are able to worship God. And that's the vehicle through which we worship for them. The vehicle through which they worshiped was the temple. And that was the only place that they could get close to God and be and belong with God. And so to lose the temple was to lose that access to God. And so that's, that's why I use that analogy the way I do is just like that is how serious it was for them um, to lose it and they really had to like rethink all of how to live and worship God without this space that was set up as the space where God um, came down from heaven and resided Um, now there's no longer a space like that and so how do we talk to God and they really had to reinvent things Um. I think uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else I wanted to. Did you have any thoughts on that, Ashley? Um, I was just thinking about the, the temple being destroyed in um, 70 AD. That kind of what it made, made me think of immediately and how tragic that was and how Jesus knew about that and actually predicted it and weeped over it um, in the New Testament. Yeah, so. yeah. There's some powerful passages in Mark 13 and Matthew 24 in specific. Uh, I think Luke 21 is the Lucan account of that. Um, but all of them are basically like uh additions of jesus looking at the temple and weeping over the fact that the temple's going to be destroyed but he's also kind of in that those stories kind of pushing the israelites to rethink the the situation because he knows that pretty soon worship won't be in a physical building Mm -hmm. but it will be inside a person so um those are some powerful passages to go um and they really only mean how like you'll really only get the power of those passages if you get how important the temple was to the people of um, Israel. Like only after like really sitting in the idea of worship being uh, 
physically limited to one space, does it start to make sense to you why some of Jesus's statements about the mm. temple became as controversial as they did, basically? So, yeah, um, that's definitely something you can go and read up on. Um, other than that, though, I think that that about does it for this episode. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about, Ashley, before uh, we finish I guess up? you saying all that kind of reminds me of the concept of the temple being destroyed in 70 AD. Kind of, It was almost like God kind of giving them what they wanted. Not the temple being destroyed, but the reason that it was destroyed is because they ended up waging a war against the Romans, which God did not want them to do. And so it was sort of like God wanted them to take this route, but... The, Israel, the nation of Israel wanted to take this other route, which is one of the reasons why they um, um, crucified Jesus, because he wasn't the kind of Messiah that they wanted, because they wanted him to come in the form of this military king. And God kept trying to get them to sort of like fight against the kingdom of darkness. That's the best way that I can think to say it. Um, fight mm. against the kingdom of darkness instead of fighting against the kingdom of Rome. But they were like, no, no, no. We want to fight against Rome because that's who are pressing us right now. And I can, you know, understand the concept like when something is there with you here and now, it feels like that's the priority. And so um, I actually did like a, a study on this like a while back. But to summarize, I'm not going to get into a bunch of facts. But the idea of how that the fact that they were unable to not see Rome as their enemy, not only um, created like tension in their own group as they were fighting against mm -hmm. the Romans yeah. but it ended up causing the temple to be destroyed because they couldn't let go of this idea that I have to that Rome is my enemy and it kind of makes me think about the concept of like forgiveness and how like when you don't forgive it can blow up into something so much bigger than when you think it actually is yeah. going to be yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's a really good point I think um, uh, like a lot of the results of 70 AD is from uh, the rejection of Jesus and what he was teaching. Um, so that's a really good point to make. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, thank you guys so much for um, tuning into this episode, and we'll be back in your feed again next week for Chapter 65. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye.